Amen. If you have your Bibles, open with me to Psalm 15. Psalm 15, it's also on page 6 of your bulletin. What comes to mind when you think of a holy person? I should say a holy person. What do you think of? Maybe some kind of monk? (laughs) I tend to think of someone, yeah, maybe robes, austere, with a tonsure, you know, the haircut. Uh, it's a great haircut. I love it. Wish, wish I could do it. Um, maybe a hypocrite. If you think of a holy person, you might, you know, have some, have some negative connotations, like a holy roller, someone who talks a big game and presents a big front, but isn't really that holy. Or what, do you, what comes to mind? Do you think of yourself? Do you consider yourself holy? It's a good question. The Bible talks a lot about holiness. And gives us a lot of commands and encouragements to holiness. And how are we to handle these things? And our Psalm 15 this morning teaches us some of what holiness looks like. And what the point of holiness truly is. And has some good words for us to consider as we think about holiness on our own. And so I will read Psalm 15 for us this morning. And then we'll pray together. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent, he who does these things shall never be moved. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord abides forever. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for this day. We thank you again for your word and this time together to sing, to pray, uh, to rejoice, and now to hear your word and hear it preached. I pray that you'd be with me, that you'd give me words to speak, to encourage, to convict, uh, to lift up and and strengthen your saints and myself. We pray that your spirit would be at work, encouraging our hearts and convicting us of sin. Lord, guide us and help us. In Christ's name, amen. What is our purpose? What are we made for? It's a big question that everyone struggles with at different times in their life. What are we here for? What are we made for? Why? What's the point of it all? And the scriptures are clear in part that part of our purpose as human beings is to dwell in the presence of God, to be with our creator. In the beginning, God created all things and all very good. The world was perfect and everything was right with a capital R. And to cap off his creation, God created man and woman, dust of the earth and breath of the divine. And he created us as physical creatures to subdue and care for creation as his stewards, to live and move and have our being here on this earth. And he created us as spirit in his own image, as living beings to relate to him, to know him, to be his children and know his presence. In one sense, experiencing and enjoying the presence of God is what we are made for. Adam and Eve tended the garden and obeyed God for a time. We'll get to that. But it's also in the garden that we read that they experienced the presence of the Lord, that he would walk with them and be with them. And this is the end of what it means to be us. It's where we are started and it's where we are headed. Think of the great promise in the book of Revelation at the end in Revelation 21.3 that 
the goal of all human history, the, the thing we're all looking forward to as Christians and headed for. In Revelation 21.3, John says, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. God will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And this image of everything right, everything restored, everything the way it was meant to be and supposed to be is God with us and us with God with his pre- in his presence. And this promise is sown throughout the scriptures. In Ezekiel and Isaiah, in the Gospels, in the, the epistles, we see this constant promise that God is working to bring us back to him, to help us enjoy his presence and the life and joy it brings. Of course, the question is raised then, well, why isn't it that way now? And we know Adam and Eve sinned. And it's very interesting when you go back and read Genesis 3 and Genesis 4 to note the language used in the actual account. When they hear God coming after they've sinned, um, they hide themselves, and the text tells us they hide themselves from the presence of the Lord. When they're cast out from the garden, they're cast out from the presence of the Lord. The imagery given is not just losing a nice piece of real estate, uh, but a much deeper and keener loss. A loss of infinite worth and beauty, a loss of purpose, a loss of the source of all rightness and wellness and goodness, a loss of the presence of our Father, our friend, our God. Most all of us have experienced the loss of the presence of a loved one, either either through actual loss or moving away or or, uh, something ruining the relationship and... um, Oftentimes, it's not really the utility of the person we miss, the things that they would do and the gifts they brought to the table, though that may be part of it. That's not entirely it. It's not necessarily the relationship we miss, the way they cared for us, or whatever that relationship was, at least not entirely. The main thing we miss is just the loss of their very presence, in which all these other things are summed up and epitomized. If only we could be with them again. We feel that. The loss of presence. And Adam and Eve lost the presence of God himself and all that went along with that. But the story of the Bible, in one sense, is the story of God restoring his people to his presence. And we see that early on after God rescues his people from Egypt. One of the first things he has them do is construct the tabernacle, a place where the garden could be recreated in part and the future coming glory could be seen and pictured. God and humanity once again being together, sojourning together, sitting at a table together. And this psalm picks up on that imagery. Verses one, uh, in v- verse 1, David says, Who shall sojourn in your tent? And the talk of the Lord's tent was a way to talk of the tabernacle because the tabernacle was basically a big tent. It was made of curtains, similar to how we speak of you know, the house of the Lord to refer to the church because the church is made of walls and a roof like a house. It's not literally a house. It's more than that, but it's the imagery we use. And the tabernacle in Jerusalem was set up on a hill where the temple would be built, the Temple Mount. It was a, a mountain, a hill. And so David says, who shall dwell on your holy hill? And he's using this imagery of the tabernacle as a metaphor for the abiding presence of God. The tabernacle is where God and humanity were being brought back together, and David says, who isn't just going to visit the tabernacle or go to the tabernacle every once in a while, but who's going to dwell there? Who's going to sojourn there? Who's going to live in the presence of God? And so I say all that in order uh, for us to really appreciate the background 
and all the meaning behind this psalm. This psalm is not just about who gets to go to the tabernacle. It's deeper and more relevant than that. And it's not just about who gets to go to heaven, though that's part of it. The question this psalm sets up is, who shall know and enjoy God's presence that we are meant for, that our life now and eternal life is uh, oriented around? Who shall know the purpose and wellness that God's presence brings? And the answer given in this psalm and that we're going to dissect is those who are holy. So my theme this morning is the joy of God's presence is only for those who are holy. And so we're going to take some time and look at that as we consider the image of holiness, the imputation of holiness, and the issue with holiness. The image of holiness, the imputation of holiness, and the issue with holiness. Firstly, I want to talk about the image of holiness. Sin and rebellion ruined our access to the presence of God, and this psalm gives us an image of what is required to experience that presence again. While it's not an exhaustive image, it is expansive and daunting. I want us to talk through these requirements to dwell with the Lord and consider what they mean for us. In verse 2, David sums up what holiness looks like. He paints a broad picture at first before getting into specifics. And he says, first of all, the holy person walks blamelessly. Their way of life is marked by a lack of blame or judgment. Now, blame and judgment require a standard. Um... By what standard are we to be judged blameless or guilty? And David, of course, would be thinking of God's law and the commandments therein that set the standard for what God required of a person. And we can think of all the law from uh, Exodus to Deuteronomy uh, or the summation of the law in the Ten Commandments. That's a little easier to think about, uh, a little easier to remember. We had uh, the preschool graduation recently, and I came and did some of the slides for it. And the kids, it was just a great song that Adam said he didn't like that much, but I liked it. And they sang through the Ten Commandments. They're easy to remember. But those sum up the law. Or if that's too much, if ten's too much, I understand. Jesus further sums it up to the Pharisees by saying, Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. The point being is holiness is first a walking according to God's standards and rules. It's aligning ourselves to his character expressed in his laws and ordinances. After all, that's why God says in the law that his people are to follow these laws, so they would be holy as he is holy. The law is a reflection of God's own holiness and character and what he calls us to be and to do to dwell with him. It's meant to reveal to us what holiness looks like and guide us in how we are to walk and live our lives. And the law judges us. Do we keep the law? Are you blameless? Am I blameless? Have we lied? Have we coveted? Have we honored our mothers and fathers? Have we entertained idols or taken the Lord's name in vain? Or any of the other laws, commandments, expressed in ordinances God gives? Are we blameless in the sight of the judge of all the earth? David says, if you want to know God's presence, if you want to sojourn with him, to dwell with him, firstly, you must be blameless in his sight. That's the first part of holiness. But don't worry, it gets worse. David goes on to say that also the holy person does what is right. Even beyond the law, David focuses on this idea of doing what is right. Now, obviously, there's some similarities to being blameless. But I think it's revealing and important that he adds this phrase. I don't think he's just being repetitive, though maybe a little bit. But I think it adds a different 
aspect, a different facet. A holy person is not a person who merely obeys the letter of the law for the sake of obedience, but rather one who is concerned with rightness and goodness. Paul makes a similar distinction in Romans 5, 7, when he's talking about Jesus dying for sinners, and he says, uh, he's talking about the the amazing nature of it all and and the difficulty it is to believe that he would die for people like us. And Paul says, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one might dare to die. Paul says, no one's going to die for a righteous person, though maybe for a good person someone would dare to die. And he picks up on this same distinction David has here between uh, righteousness and goodness, that both are important to holiness. It's not just merely obeying for the sake of obedience. It's being good and doing right. We may strive to keep the law, may strive to be holy, but are our motives and reasons pure? Do we love goodness and rightness or are we doing it for our own benefit doing it for our own reasons not only is holiness an outward thing we see in verse one that it's an inward thing as well david says the holy person speaks truth in his heart there are many people who on the outside seem blameless and good and yet who inwardly are ravenous wolves think of jesus talking to the pharisees and calling them whitewashed tombs and cups cleaned on the outside only some very harsh words for them um Because holiness is not just focused on outward behavior, but permeates to the inner being. It's a heart full of truth and rightness. It's a person who doesn't lie to themselves, who doesn't allow falsehoods into their own thinking and desires, who doesn't just do right and uh, do blameless things, but thinks and desires good and blameless things. How are we doing so far? Looking at God's law, are you blameless? Am I? Have you always done what is right? Have you allowed uh, any lies or falsehoods to set root in your heart? Don't worry. We've got further to go. We'll all feel worse before this is over. David goes on to dive in some specifics of what this looks like practically. And he first deals with how holiness looks like, uh, looks in relation uh, to our relationships with others. The holy person, he says, is one who doesn't slander with his tongue. Now, this isn't a prescription against speaking strongly or even calling out people. Jesus, I just said, called the Pharisees whitewashed tombs and cups cleaned on the outside. That's uh, pretty strong language. Uh, But the impressive thing is not that Jesus used strong language. It's that that wasn't slander. They were really that bad. Slander is speaking untrue and evil things about others to tear them down, to lie about them, not to call them to repentance, not to, uh, to call out their sin, but to hurt them and to destroy them, um, specifically relating to things that are untrue, to lie about others, to spread rumors and falsehoods, to tear others down. David says, this isn't the way of the holy person. They don't slander. They don't do evil to any evil to their neighbor. The holy person is concerned with doing good and right by those around him. He's not just concerned with his own walk, his own life, his own stuff. He's concerned with how he treats others. He seeks to do good. He wants to be a blessing and not a curse to his neighbor. We read that he doesn't take up a reproach against his friend. The holy person is a good friend who speaks truth and defends them and doesn't do anything wrong to his friends. It's a pretty high standard. It's how we're supposed to treat people. Almost like we're supposed to love them as we love ourselves. Not speak bad about them, be a blessing to them, defend them, treat them how we want to be treated. But not only are we supposed to 
uh, treat those around us well. We're supposed to judge rightly. The holy person has righteous judgment. We see in verse uh, 4, in whose eyes a vile person is despised but honors those who fear the Lord, that the holy person, um, those who rejoice in their sin and take pride in their sin are held in contempt by the holy person. That they don't cozy up to them, seeking to gain their favor. That they don't excuse their sin and their their, uh, um, shortcomings for their own benefit. And they honor those who fear the Lord. They recognize the importance of fearing the Lord and rejoice in the holy. They have a righteous judgment. And lastly, we see they're selfless. In verse um, 4 at the end into verse 5, David says that the holy person is one who swears to his own hurt but does not change. He does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. love that language of swearing to his own hurt and does not change because we can all make all sorts of promises, but when those promises come back to bite us, we can be very quick to want to change. Very quick to say, well, actually, I didn't, I didn't mean all that now. I didn't promise that or uh, <coughs> however it might look. When we start to make promises, when we swear and it comes back to our own hurt, we're quick to want to be selfish, to not hold to our word. But the holy person, David says, is one who doesn't change, even if it hurts him from what he swears. He's generous. He gives his money, but he's not greedy. He doesn't put out his money at interest. He gives freely to those in need, not expecting anything in return, not expecting uh, to be repaid extra, to make money off of those who are in need. He doesn't oppress the poor. He doesn't take a bribe against the innocent. He doesn't let money and things cloud his judgment. He's concerned with walking blameless and doing what is right. How are we doing? As we consider this image of holiness given here, how far have you and I fallen? If we're honest with ourselves, this is not a picture of us. This is not an image of me, and this is not an image of you. We have blame. We haven't always done right. We have been greedy. We have despised those who fear the Lord and honor the vile. We have slandered. We have done evil to our neighbors. At the end of the day, when we look into this image of holiness, by any objective measure, it's not an image of us, at least not fully. If I were to talk to to someone who had never seen Adam before, and I told them, well, you know, Adam is a very tall man, clean-shaven, dark brown curly hair, just jacked, huge muscles. When they met Adam, what would they think of me? They would know, they would think that either I'm blind or I'm a liar. Because Adam is, got gray hair, you know, he's not the tallest man. He's got a nice beard. And while he is strong, he's not a bodybuilder, and I'm not either. Um. When we read this psalm and see this is the kind of person who is holy, who enjoys God's presence, who comes up into God's tent and on his uh, hill and dwells there, we all ought to walk away thinking, that's not me. And if we do walk away from this psalm thinking, oh, this is me, this is an image of me, either we're blind or we're a liar. This is not an image of us. And as we read it, it ought to remind us of that. Show us how far we fall. Show us our sin. If this is what is required to know the presence of the Lord, to dwell with him, to 
enjoy the thing that we are made for, that we are headed to, what hope do any of us really have? None. But this raises an important question. Who is this psalm really about? If it's not about you, if it's not about me, who is this person? We know this is a psalm of David. It says that right at the beginning. It's a, uh, a psalm of David. <coughs> we don't know when he wrote it, but think through David's own life. If it was before some of his greatest sins, can you imagine how these words he penned must have haunted him? As he repents of his sin with Bathsheba and his murder of Uriah, and he thinks back to the psalm that he had written, talking about he who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart. David considers his own lusting and lying and self-deception. When he remembers how he wrote about the holy person doing no evil to his neighbor and considers what he had done to his own literal neighbor, Uriah. You remember David lived close enough to see Bathsheba on her rooftop and David killed him. He considers the evil he does to his own neighbor. He considers the words he penned, how that must have eaten at him as he realized, this isn't about me. This can't be about me. I can't reach this image. And if he wrote it after the fact, certainly he would have not thought this was about him. Who shall enjoy the presence of God? Who shall enjoy right standing with God? Is it just hopeful, wishful thinking? Is it just a, a meaningless standard that sounds good but it's impossible to attain? Is it a standard set that we're not meant to reach? Kind of like the you know, professors and teachers who say, I don't give out hun hundreds because no work is perfect. Um, what's the point of this psalm? What, what's it here for? We know David wrote this psalm, but like all the psalms, it's not ultimately a psalm of David, but a psalm and song of Christ. This is the victory song of the Messiah to come. A song rejoicing in the character and holiness, not of any fallen man or woman, but of the perfect Messiah who would come and be blameless and selfless and right. Who would earn the right to stand on God's holy hill and dwell in his tent, <coughs> but who would also swear to his own hurt and not change, but remain the same yesterday, today, and forever. Who would swear that the holiness he had in his living and walking and thinking would be not for himself, but for others at the cost of his own hurt and even death. And he would ask nothing in return, no interest, no repayment, but give generously to those in need. You and I can never by our own works enter the presence of God. God sent Adam and Eve away from his presence in part as a punishment, but also in part as a protection. Holiness cannot abide sin. We see that all over the scriptures. When God interacts with people, they are terrified. They are fearful. They know. I think of Isaiah and Isaiah 6 when he sees the Lord in his temple and he says, he doesn't say, this is awesome. He doesn't rejoice. He doesn't exclaim and, and be happy as we might expect. He cries out, woe is me because I am undone. My eyes have seen the Lord. He, he says, I'm going to die. I'm going to be destroyed. I'm being wiped away like a piece of paper being teleported to the surface of the sun, just consumed because of God's perfect holiness in my sin. And yet Christ comes and says, I can sojourn in the tent of the Lord. I can dwell on his holy hill, hill but I'm going to give you my holiness as a covering so that you can join me up here 
and I will be consumed for you. I will bear the brunt of God's fierce holiness as a sinner for you. The psalm is about Christ, but also in another way, it's about us. Because as we trust in Christ and rely on him, he gives us his own image. He imputes his holiness to us such that when God looks on me, he doesn't see all my blame, all my wrongness, the lies in my heart, my slander, my broken vows, and my selfishness. He sees Christ as he's sung about in this psalm. He looks at me and sees someone who walks blamelessly, who does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, who doesn't slander or do any of these other things. He sees Christ instead of me. And thus this psalm is singing of Christ, but as we have union with the Messiah and are accounted one with him, it's our song too. And I asked you at the beginning, what do you think of when you think of a holy person? Do you think of yourself? And you ought to. You really ought to. Not necessarily on your own works, but because that's how God sees those who have put their faith and trust in Christ, just as this psalm describes them. Who shall sojourn in God's tent? Who shall dwell in his holy hill? Who shall know the presence of the Lord? The one who fulfills this psalm. The one who is holy as the Lord is holy. And that is you, and that is me, if we place our hope and trust in the finished work of Christ on the cross, accepting his holiness for us. But this raises another important question, my last point, and this a very important issue. And the issue with holiness is, I've placed my trust in Christ, I've received his holiness, now what? This psalm points us to Christ and the need for a perfect holiness, but is that all? What else are we meant to do in light of this psalm and all the other commands and examples we have in Scripture uh, pertaining to holiness? Because the Scriptures are full of calls to holiness. We read some in uh, Hebrews 12 this morning. How are we supposed to handle these? Do they even matter anymore? If we're covered with Christ, if we're perfectly holy, do they matter? Well, some would say they don't really. That once we are counted holy in Christ, we don't need to worry about our own holiness anymore. Uh, if you want the fancy theological word, antinomianism. Go and impress someone with that or be, get called a nerd, either way. Antinomianism, anti meaning against, obviously. And then namas, uh, coming from uh, Greek for law. So against the law. And these are people who would say, you don't need to worry about the law. You don't need to worry about uh, sin and growing in practical holiness. You don't need to be worry, worry about being blameless. I recall hearing a pastor once uh, say that sin is like a ham sandwich in the fridge. And if you try and strive not to eat it, you're just going to eat it anyways. You're going to think about it. It's going to consume you. and You're just going to eat it anyways. So the best thing to do is just not worry about it. Don't think about it. And while I understand that we can become so obsessed with holiness that we miss the bigger picture, uh, the scripture so shows us that we ought to take the law and holiness very seriously indeed. Romans 6, Paul talks there and says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? So that's kind of this mindset of antinomianism, right? Who cares? You're under grace. You have Christ's holiness. Stop worrying about sin and righteousness Paul says, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Going on in Romans uh, 6, verses 12 through 14, later on, Paul goes on to say, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, 
to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. Um, Paul certainly seems to think that we ought to strive against sin. In fact, Paul specifically strikes out against those who would use grace as an excuse not to fight against sin. In verse 14 of Romans 6, Paul says, For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. The fact that we're under grace to Paul means we ought to fight even harder than if we had been under law. That we ought to be even purer, even holier, because we already have Christ's holiness than if we didn't. Which is a little counterintuitive. But that's what Paul says in Hebrews 12. Again, uh, we had that for our confession of sin. But earlier in the chapter, in verses 1 or 2, the author of Hebrews says, we are, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Again, doesn't seem very unworried or unintentional, uh, uh, but a very intentional striving for holiness even jesus in the great commission and lots of other places but uh, i do have to be finished with the sermon at some point um, even jesus says in matthew 28 19 through 20 the great commission go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the father of the son and the holy spirit love this verse and that's a very very good part but many times we could forget what comes next in verse 20 teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. That part of making disciples, part of our job as Christians is to teach others and ourselves to observe what Christ has commanded. And when we go back and read the Gospels, we see Christ's standard and what he has told his disciples to do is exceedingly difficult, exceedingly concerned with sin and holiness. Think of the Sermon on the Mount, right? Jesus says, if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It doesn't sound like not being concerned with sin. Now, obviously he's speaking a bit hyperbolically there. Uh, we can talk about that in a different sermon. But the point being, Christ is very concerned with sin. He's very concerned with holiness for his followers. He wants his people to follow him to live holy lives. No, we are not to take sin lightly. But we must be careful not to fall too far, on the, uh, too far on the other side as well. Some would say that holiness is important, but go too far and say that you need good works to be saved, and your salvation is dependent upon your good works. Legalism is the name for that, and is a uh, relatively well-known danger, but it's wrong as well. Nothing you or I do can fix how we failed to keep the image sung about in this psalm. And nothing you or I can do to, can add to what Christ has done in fulfilling this psalm. We can't enter God's presence on our own works. We can only trust in Christ. The correct path forward as we consider what it means to be objectively holy in Christ and struggling to be subjectively holy in our own behavior is recognize and resting in our ultimate salvation in Christ while praying for and pursuing our own personal holiness. In fact, as Paul said in Romans 6, our objective holiness, being under grace, leads us and frees us to strive for our subjective holiness. Have you ever worked at a job that you just hate? Or that you're worried that you're going to, worried constantly that you're going to be fired from? 
not fun to work there. Once upon a time, I worked at McDonald's, and that was a lot of fun. No, it wasn't. It was miserable. I hated it. And every time I came in, I was afraid I'd be fired. They let people go for the smallest mistakes, for the craziest things. And you might think that that would work to make people work harder and do well, but it, it really didn't. I only ever did the bare minimum because why would I risk doing more if, if what I did, if I did it wrong, I get the axe. I'm done. I would make burgers. I liked making burgers. That was part of my job. Now, let's say my mom and dad are here. I made this analogy without the knowing they were coming, so it's not because y'all are here, but I do love y'all. Uh, let's say, and we are going out to lunch today. I go out to lunch with mom and dad. We're going to my house, and I say, I'm going to make burgers for mom and daddy. Now, I made burgers at McDonald's. It's the same thing, the same action, the same behavior. But the motivation behind it is entirely different. In one sense, in one sense, when we're at McDonald's, I'm doing it because I have to. Because if I don't do it, I'm fired. And there's a fear. There's a worry. There's a concern. And I'm not doing anything extra. But if when I make burgers for my parents, which I'm not making burgers, I'm making pizza. But if I were to make burgers... There's no fear. There's a little fear, but it's not fear of them saying, Jacob, you're no longer our son. We hate you. Get out of here. You're done. I hope not, at least. It's a fear of disappointing them because I love them so much, and I want them to be happy with what I do because I want them to rejoice in what I offer to them. I know they love me, even if I burn the burgers, even if they're a little too pink or whatever it might be, and I go above and beyond, or at least I want to and often do, I get fancy burgers, I get fancy lettuce, I get fancy ketchup because I want it to be the best for them. At McDonald's, I don't really care that much. When we know our place is secure, when we know we are loved, when we know we have acceptance, it frees us not to slouch, not to not work, not to not honor those who love us, but it frees us to work harder. We know we have acceptance. We know we're forgiven. We know we're secure. And we can branch out and try and, and strive for holiness, strive to do things from a position of strength, from a position of security. Our response to holiness shouldn't be, oh, this doesn't matter. And our sh- response shouldn't be despair and worrying about being cut off from God. Our response should be, thank you, Lord, for giving me this kind of holiness and help me be this. Convict me of where I fall short. Encourage me in righteousness. May this psalm be true of me, even in the smallest ways, and more and more and more, by your grace, working through my feeble efforts. We are made to dwell, to sojourn with the Holy One of Israel, to know his presence, to know his joy, to know what we are made for. But that requires holiness, to be in the image of the holiness this psalm sings about. And on our own, if we're honest with ourselves, we fail miserably. But this psalm points us to the one it's truly about. The Messiah who fulfills this psalm and lifts us up and declares that we have fulfilled it perfectly too. And this objective declaration of holiness frees us to fight and strive to really seek after our own holiness. Not because we want to save ourselves, but because we have been saved. And the end of holiness, both Christ's and our own, is the knowledge of the presence of God, both now in part and fully in the kingdom to come, when we will dwell in his tent, sojourn on his holy hill.
So rest in Christ. Trust in Him. Hate sin and fight to be like Christ as we see Him sung about in this psalm. And know that even though we fail, even though we don't do it perfectly, God, this is how God sees us in Christ. So join me in prayer as we close. Father in heaven, we thank you that you are holy. That you are holy, 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 as the angels sing in Isaiah. Lord, you are not like us, and your standards are not our standards. You demand perfection from us. And it is good to have a God this way. What good is a God who lies, a God who hates, a God who um, is sinful and corrupted? But you are perfect in every way, perfect in love, perfect in goodness, and perfect in holiness. And so we thank you for who you are, and thank you for this psalm. And we pray, Lord, we recognize the ways we have fallen short in the past and continue to fall short in the present. We ask for your forgiveness, that you would help us to trust in Christ's finished work, that you would help us to rely on his holiness and not our own for our standing with you. And Lord, may that comfort and assurance of forgiveness motivate us to seek after this image, that we might become more and more like our elder brother Christ. Lord, convict us of our sin. Encourage us in righteousness by your spirit. In Christ's name, amen.